I know you're out there. I can feel you now. I know that you're afraid. You're afraid of us. You're afraid of change. I don't know the future. I didn't come here to tell you how this is going to end. I came here to tell you how it's going to begin. I'm going to hang up this phone, and then I'm going to show these people what you don't want them to see. I'm going to show them a world without you. A world without rules and controls, without borders or boundaries. A world where anything is possible. Where we go from there is a choice I leave to you. You're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX. I'm Frank Ling, and this is Berkeley Grok. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. And I'm Gordon Campbell. Coming up on today's program, we'll be discussing current developments in the world of science and technology. Also joining us is John Hoffman, who will talk about the Energy Star program. In addition, you can find out the number of heartbeats in a lifetime. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the world-famous Question of the Week, right here on Berkeley Grok's. I'm Franklin. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. And I'm Gordon Campbell. All right, how's everyone doing? Pretty good. It's, it's Cinco de Mayo. Happy Cinco de Mayo, by the hey, way. Hey, happy Cinco de Mayo. <laughs> no I think plans. we should declare independence from... Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm declaring independence from Bush, I guess. That's <laughs> Probably hunt you down. Yeah. And, <laughs> and the people who harbor them. Actually, you may want to care whether Bush really comes here or not. Uh, so there's been a lot of controversy about who runs the national lab, you know, including LBL, Lawrence Berkeley, uh, Livermore, and of course, uh, Los Alamos. Congress has enacted legislation that says that these labs have to go up for bidding in terms of who gets the contract. So as long as it's not George Bush himself. <laughs> we know all about the nuclear science. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> this means there's a very likely chance that uh, the UC will lose uh, Los Alamos. Oh, really? Yeah, possibly Livermore, and most likely uh, Berkeley Labs will still stay with UC. It's being bid on by whom? Most likely uh, private contractors for uh, corporations, let's say like Battelle or Sandia, oh. and possibly uh, University of Texas. So other universities could actually open up bidding?
bidding for. Yes, I guess they're envious of UC's position of running labs in their territory or something. Right. Texans run <laughs> a lab like that sounds a little bit scary. <laughs> so, but UC of course can still bid on it. Of course they can, but they don't have the exclusive contracts anymore. Right, right. I well, I imagine their their resources would probably be overextended even if they did try to run all three. See, that's one of the reasons why scientists here want to keep it because they think the close collaboration we have between the scientists in the UC oh. schools and the laboratories actually enhance the uh, the research that comes out of it. If people want to make a bid on on the national lab, where can they <laughs> take a look? Go to uh, eBay, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it might happen, but uh, it's going to be through the Department of Energy. Wish you could live forever. Hey, so far so good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, there might be hope for you. So it's been shown previously that mice, fish, and even yeast can live longer on a long-term calorie restriction diet. We had to give up something to live forever. <laughs> so basically we can't eat if we want to live forever. Right. It might not be a pleasant <laughs> life, but it might be a long one. Now they've actually shown that the same thing holds for humans. And this was some research done at Washington University in St. Louis, where they managed to locate 18 people aged 25 to 82 who had spent an average of six years following nutritionally balanced diets recommended by the Calorie Restriction Society. What they found was that these subjects <laughs> lost a lot of weight, consuming yeah. 46% of their calories as complex carbohydrates. Plus, they found that the bad cholesterol, blood lipids, diabetes risk markers, all went way down, and they found that their blood pressures dropped the childhood levels. To be a kid again. Right. Not they just mentally. <laughs> yeah. They also found that the subjects were 9% fat compared with 24% fat for the controls and surprisingly 12% fat for people who run 50 miles a week so they're doing even better than that category well not eating usually does that I think <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I guess it's not too surprising <laughs> it's like a conservation mass problem right, there, huh? yeah. but they, they don't have any uh, indication for their longevity yet but I, I guess they presume that they're going to live longer right. based on these indications yeah I guess uh, they'll have to wait for them to keel over <laughs> but one of the subjects is 82 presumably Ooh. so that might not be. Hurry up, man. <laughs> well, don't uh, be too far off. Okay. Stay off the Big Macs and fries. That's right. So this was study published in Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. Oh, our oh, favorite, our favorite journal. journal. Our favorite journal. Penis. <laughs> How about bidding to save some old records? Oh, not another football team, perhaps? <laughs> uh, no, it turns out that researchers have actually developed a method for uh, copying old vinyl records without actually touching them. Wow. wow. Glad that you asked that question, as if not prompted. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it turns out researchers have actually taken a technique which basically uses a light sensor mm. that was originally used to track the pass of subatomic particles like bosons. Right. And they've used these now to actually read the grooves off of the vinyl records. I'm glad they've come up with a more practical function for this <laughs> so technology. So physics got the groove back. <laughs> it's quite amazing because they can capture the sound off of records that have even been like cracked or broken, which allows them to uh, basically get really high-quality versions of the information that's on the records. So it's like an uh -huh. audio version of Photoshop, huh? <laughs> <laughs> In a way, they're digitally copying this stuff, clean it up and uh, mm -hmm. enhance it. Are they eventually going to have turntables that use uh, tunneling microscopy <laughs> as the <laughs> direct method for playing records? I haven't seen a vinyl record in ages. Me neither. I guess we have. Do they still make them? Well, we I guess we do have a ton here in the Calix Studios. It's interesting because historians, of course, have a huge backlog of vinyl records that they want to try and backlog. Mm -hmm. So this is their only method for actually copying these things and having them able to be heard. Well, maybe Calix can make use of that. We won't even need DJs though at some point. Be uh, done to your iPod or something. Shh, don't say that. <laughs> I hope to be replaced one day by an iPod. <laughs> <laughs> That's my goal. So this is very fascinating work and it can be found in the Berkeley Lab View. 
joining us again this week with a very special report on spinach is Lin Lee. Hi, Frank. So you know that spinach pigments are proposed as blindness curve? So we should eat our spinach, huh? Well, actually not to eat our spinach. So you know that degenerative diseases of the retina, such as macular degeneration, are among the most common forms of blindness in developed countries. But these diseases only affect the rods and the cones, not the nerve cells in front of them. So a lot of research has been done to look at some way to you know, revive these nerve cells, which are still healthy, but are somehow not being used when these diseases that cause blindness occur. Mm-hmm. Experiments with implants that consist of an array of electrodes have shown it is possible to restore at least rudimentary vision by stimulating these nerve cells directly. So basically, they're sending in electric current to these nerve cells, firing them up. But Eli Greenbaum uh, and team at Oak Ridge National Lab are trying to replace the voltage stimulation by electrodes with voltage stimulation by light-absorbing pigments, so a more natural form. Okay, so how does this compare to some of the recent developments using uh, bionic implants for uh, replacing a retina? It's not as good, but instead of replacing all that, you're just, you know, this is less invasive. Okay, and more natural. Yeah, more natural, yeah. So basically, um, Eli Greenbaum has added these natural pigments to nerve cells in the retina to make the nerve cells fire when they're struck by light. Mm Mm-hmm. And he used the pigments from spinach and basically the PS, uh, the photo, photosynthetic one reaction centers. And these centers, each of these are a cluster of proteins that straddles the chloroplast membrane in plant cells. So, you know, they, they're natural versus something that's unnatural in the environment, you know, occurs in nature. So possibly these would be not rejecting the body when they're being implanted. Excellent. So there is hope for people who've uh, who had macular damage to their eyes. Possibly. There's still some work that needs to be done on it. His initial studies, they were able to show that the voltage generated across the um, PS1 centers when the complexes absorb light exceeds the threshold to needed to make the nerve cell fire. So basically, in these initial studies, he was able to show that the amount of light being absorbed by the PS1 was more than enough to excite these nerve cells. So if anyone wants to know more about this? They can look at the most recent issue of New Scientists. And again, the, the author is Eli Greenbaum. Thanks a lot, Lynn. You're welcome. Sad note this week, one of evolutionary biologists' leading theorists, John Maynard Smith, died peacefully at the age of 84. But he ate well, right? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not well enough. <laughs> Among other contributions, one of the things he's most famous for is introducing game theory into the study of evolution. The thing that was popularized by uh, John Forbes Nash. Exactly. We'll keep in mind this Cinco de Mayo. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all for a look at current developments in neuronal science this week. This is Berkeley Grox you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, John Hoffman joins us to talk about the Energy Star program. So stay tuned.
welcome back to Berkeley Grocks. You see it on your washing machines, you see it on your microwave ovens, and you certainly see it when you boot up your computer. It is the Energy Star label. Well, joining us today is a very special guest, Dr. John Hoffman, a former director of global climate changes at the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, Dr. Hoffman, thanks for joining us. Uh, first of all, could you tell us how uh, you got interested in energy conservation and how you started the, the Energy Star program? We were looking for a way to find a brand or a label that would tell people this is a good product to buy. We decided to go after computers first. Laptops had always had this ability to go to sleep because the batteries wouldn't let them last very long, but that technology hadn't been applied to desktops. So we decided to create a label that would have a very simple rule. Go to sleep, use less than 25 watts, it could get an Energy Star label. And now there are somewhere on the order of uh, 20,000 products which use the Energy Star label, is that right? The Energy Star label has been really successful. I mean, first, it really took less than, I'd say, a year and a half before you couldn't make a personal computer without it. And then the monitors, of course, went with that. We expanded it to lots of other products. So today you can buy washing machines, dryers, refrigerators, which have Energy Star. People should look for that label. They're always virtually going to save money, and they're going to reduce their environmental footprint on the planet. The energy savings must be substantial. Uh, would you, by any chance, know how much energy you save? with the Energy Star label? Well, I'm really not up to date on the latest numbers, but you know, I know that it's the equivalent to taking millions of cars off the road. I understand there was some resistance from companies when you first proposed the Energy Star program. Um, how did you eventually win them over? Well, we had some really good people that worked on that program, and they were smart. They went to Apple, IBM, and Intel, kind of the three leaders. And they found people in these companies that had always wanted to do these things, mm -hmm. but never been allowed to do them. And that empowered those people to go up to their bosses and say, hey, the EPA is here. They're willing to give us a star that will help us sell these computers. So that really got things moving once you had those three leaders on board. And I think that's an important thing to remember. A lot of times what people try to do is they try to get everybody in the room. Oftentimes, you're best off to work with leaders and just let them set an example and let the others follow. So that was the, the approach that we used with energy. Star. So Energy Star really is a device for transforming the market, right? When you look really at the world today, there's a lot of great technology that's just sitting on the shelf. The question is, how do you get people to buy it? How do you get it out there to be successfully marketed? And often it's a chicken and egg problem. You know, the new technology costs a little bit more than the existing technology, and people don't want to spend more, even though they'd save over the life of the product more than the extra cost. So it stays there as a kind of in a bad quadrant, you know, high high cost, low sales, it never gets anywhere. So the key, you know, to solving a lot of our environmental problems is going to be to figure out how to shift that to a new paradigm where the efficient technologies, the better technologies get purchased. After you left the EPA, you were still working on energies related to projects. Uh, perhaps you could describe some of your recent ones. Well, we've got two ones that we've commercialized now. One is we have a new air conditioning system, the first application of which is going to be in California. The California Energy Commission is funding a demonstration of our CoolSmart system. This is a system that's going to go into a small retail store someplace in California. We haven't made an agreement yet with the retailer. It's going to save half the energy and it's not going to cost anything more than the existing systems. Mm -hmm. 
So we're, we're excited and ultimately we plan to have a solar cooler that goes with that that's thermally driven. And when we put that on, we'd be saving more than 90% of the energy associated with cooling buildings. The other technology we've developed is a system to increase the output of combined cycle power plants, which are the most efficient power plants. They burn natural gas, but unfortunately in the summer when you need the electricity most from them, they lose some of their capacity to produce power because the air gets thinner as it warms. So we have a variable supercharging system we've developed can restore power at a cost far below what it would cost to build new power plants, do it from the most efficient plants that are out there. So are these uh, are these devices based on a distributed model where power plants can be uh, located you know, in, a, in your neighborhood or is it a centralized they, system? They can be used in either one. We're, we're actually building the first power cool system right now in a micro turbine in Canada that's just in a small little building, 70 kW machine, but we can put it on a machine that's 300 megawatt. But the, the key to power cool is that we can do this in the most efficient systems so we can get more power out of them and that displaces less efficient power. So what do you foresee in renewable energies? Do you foresee wider adoption in the near future? Well, I think a lot of this depends on the politics of what happens now. I mean, we have people who believe that the only solution to the energy problems we face is to go start extracting oil from Alaska and tearing up the West, you know, things like that. Then there's those of us who believe super efficiency and super productivity, where we can double and triple the output that we get from the existing machines, so we need a lot less energy. A lot will depend on, you know, what happens in the next presidential election, which of those two paradigms the country follows in the world. There's a lot of speculation that photovoltaics may be the savior in coming years, but the systems that we've seen are either very expensive or not very efficient. Do you, are you optimistic about PV taking off in, say, 10 years or so? Well, I think it's taking off now, specialty applications in the U.S. and then in the developing countries. PV is already a better source of energy than burning kerosene to make light, for example. If you think about the fact that one quarter of the world people are not connected to grid, solar lanterns uh, are already more profitable and a better source of energy for these people than than what they have now. And there's a number of people and companies around the world that are moving to introduce these kinds of technologies to to these areas and improving people's lives quite a bit that way. Finally, I just want to touch upon the hydrogen economy. It's been said that for every gallon of gasoline you, uh, you place in your automobile with hydrogen, you actually have to expend six gallons of, of fuel to actually produce that hydrogen. So the economics of it doesn't quite make sense. But there's a lot of work going on to bridge the gap. How soon do you think this can be done? Well, I'm not very bullish on hydrogen. I think hydrogen is going to be, for the reasons you mentioned, very difficult to use as a fuel. I think that we could look towards using more natural gas and eventually using biofuels mm -hmm. that are made from uh, growing trees and woody materials faster. And I think that that has a lot better economics. I think we all need to recognize that if we're going to move towards super productivity and energy, we want to do it in the most efficient way that costs people the least. You know, there are internal combustion engines today that people are working on that I think can get 50% efficiency. And what we're talking about from fuel cells is 44% efficiency once you've made the hydrogen, which costs energy. So I don't see fuel cells as being a very strong contender uh, for the future unless there's some kind of breakthrough. Well, I guess we're running a little bit out of time today. Uh, are there any last words you'd like to add about yourself or your current work? No, I'm, Frank, it was really good to meet you here. We're just sitting here at, at, at across from the Washington National Zoo, and it's almost like the weather is in the Bay Area where I used to live. <laughs> so, you know, I'm glad to at least have a few days a year like, like it is out there. Well, thanks a lot for your perspectives today, Dr. Hoffman. Thank you. And we were just talking to Dr. John Hoffman 
former director of climate changes at EPA, about the Energy Star program. And this is Brick Rocks you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, we'll find out why we need to sleep. So stay tuned. back to Berkeley Rocks. Ever wonder why we need to sleep? Well, now you can on this week's edition of Everyday Science. Ever wonder why we sleep? The answer can be found in Everyday Science. Sleeping and waking are controlled by neural centers located in the brain just above the spinal cord. There's the alertness center, which keeps you awake. The sleep control center, which secretes an inhibiting chemical that slows down the alertness center, kind of like a sleeping drug. And the dream control center, which uses that sleeping drug to start dreams. During the day, when we're awake, the sleep control center begins to secrete its inhibiting chemical. As this drug accumulates, it inhibits the alertness center. We become drowsy and fall into the first, or slow wave, stage of sleep. During this stage, our body functions as if we were awake. We're just slower and less aware of our surroundings. Eventually, we enter the REM, or rapid eye movement stage. In this stage, our dream control center has put its inhibiting chemical to use, and we begin to dream. Physically, our muscles become paralyzed, our breathing and heartbeat irregular, and our brain is working at full potential creating dreamscapes which our rapidly moving eyes watch. 20% of our sleep time is spent in this stage. The rest is spent in slow wave sleep. All night we go back and forth between REM and slow wave sleep, REM and slow wave, until finally the dream center has used up so much of the sleep drug that it can no longer inhibit the alertness center. And we... Well, that was a real eye-opener. Thanks for being a part of Everyday Science. 
Everyday Science is part of Bayer Corporation's national education program, making science make sense. Thanks a lot, Everyday Science Lady. Wow, that was amazing. You know, Everyday Science Lady, you really know how to keep me awake. Okay, now here's Esteban the Spaniard with the answer to last week's question of the week. Take it away. Alright, my friend, and now it's time for the answer to last week's question of the week. It's Esteban the Spaniard with the answer. You know, as Spaniards, we have a great heart, but the hearts of every man beats a lot. How many times does it beat? Oh, my friend, 2.5 billion times. And that is the times that the heart is beating, my friend. Take it from Esteban the Spaniard, the Spaniard with the heart. I'm Forrest Gump, and I always wondered who Edwin Armstrong is. My mama says that it was because of him that I could hear music through my radio. If you know who he is or what he did, you can email us at grocks at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but you'll just keep that dial tuned to 90.7. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you want to contact us here at Berkeley Grocks, you can do so at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Gordon Campbell. And I'm Frank Link. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. And I'm Charles Lee. Stay tuned for more music with your host, Katie.